1: I am Dean Linky, and this is Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. And I must admit, coming off spending time with U.S. Women's National Team Head Coach and Andonofsky in our last show, it was going to be tough to beat that. But dare I say, we may have done it with this show, just our fifth ever. Segment one is loaded with four superstars, including the ECNL Boys Commissioner, Jason Cutney, as well as Louisville City FC Youth Academy Director, mario sanchez pittsburgh riverhounds academy director scott gibson oliver Vees, who is the orange county soccer club president of operations and general manager and trust me folks jason cutney does an amazing job leading this high-level discussion about how the ecnl has positioned itself and its clubs as a legitimate youth development pathway for young players to develop into professionals at clubs across the world including MLS, but far broader. Tips not just for the ECNL boys, but even ECNL girls. And I have to tell you, the discussion was so good, I kept it together as one solid interview because I could not turn away. I hope you'll feel the same way. And in our second segment, we meet former McLean youth soccer star Madison Hammond, who now plays with O.L. Reign in the NWSL. She is the only Native American in the NWSL. She is a woman of color. She starred for Tony DeLuz at Wake Forest. ECNL president and CEO Christian Labors joins me for that discussion with Madison Hammond. So it's another big show of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. And it starts with Jason Cutney and his star-studded crew after these messages.
0: With over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players, the ECNL is leading youth soccer forward in the United States. A new season has kicked off and a new brand identity has been launched. But one thing stays constant. The ECNL is more than a league. Nike is a proud sponsor of ECNL Girls. Nothing can stop what we can do together to bring positive change to our communities. You can't stop sport because you can't stop our voices. Follow Nike on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Soccer.com is proud to partner with the ECNL to support the continued development of soccer in the U.S. at the highest levels. Visit soccer.com today to check out our unmatched selection of soccer gear, expert advice, and stories of greatness at every level of the game.
1: I am Dean Linkey, and this is Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, our fifth episode all time, and another good one. Coming up after this segment, ECNL president and CEO Christian Labors joins me as we spend time with former McLean Youth Soccer ECNL star Madison Hammond, who not only played every game possible for Tony Deleuze at Wake Forest, but she is now proudly the first and only Native American playing in the NWSL. Just as important, her mom is a big-timer with the Navy, helping our nation's coronavirus task force, and her mom's brother is Nota Begay, big-time golfer at Stanford, friends with Tiger Woods, and a leading voice for the Native Americans in our country. That's segment two. To give you an idea how big segment one is, it's loaded with four superstars, including the ECNL Boys Commissioner Jason Cutney as well as Mario Sanchez, Scott Gibson, Oliver Vies, whose bios I will review in a moment. The focus of this discussion is how the ECNL positions itself and its clubs as a legitimate youth development pathway for young players to develop into professionals at clubs across the world, including MLS, but far broader. So here we go. Let's meet our panel. Mario Sanchez is the Youth Academy director for Louisville City, certainly a model organization. He is a USSF-A licensed coach with 21 years of NCAA Division I coaching experience as an assistant and head coach. Mario played collegially at Fresno State before playing for three teams in pro soccer. An assistant at his alma mater from 99 to 2003, Mario moved to Akron for three seasons before becoming the head coach at UNLV. An assistant at the University of Louisville from 2010 to 15, Mario was a part of UofL's most successful seasons before he became the head coach at SIUE in 2015. In addition to being the Academy Director for Louisville City, Sanchez also coaches the club's U23 team, which competes in USL League 2. Welcome, Mario. Thank you, guys. Looking forward to it. Scott Gibson is the Pittsburgh Riverhounds SC Academy director. Gibson came to the U.S. in 2003 to play collegiate soccer at Duquesne University and played two years professionally in Pittsburgh in 08 and 09. During this time, Gibson worked with Jason Cutney, who you're going to hear from in a moment, in building the Riverhounds Academy from a training-only program to a full-development model over the past 10 years. Gibson grew up in England and played in Middlesbrough, Darlington, and York City Academies as a youth player. Welcome Scott Gibson. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. And finally, Oliver Vies, the Orange County Soccer Club president of soccer operations and general manager, where he oversees all soccer operations, including the coaching and technical staff, player transfers and acquisitions, and all academy affiliations. Oliver was instrumental in closing the Glasgow Rangers FC partnership and manages all domestic and international soccer initiatives. Oliver started his soccer career in the Swiss first division. He was selected for the Swiss youth national team where he played in over 20 international games, including the European Cup qualifiers. Oliver holds a U.S. Soccer A license and has been deeply involved in the Orange County soccer community since 97. Worth noting, I think Oliver was diagnosed in 97 with a severe blood disorder that ended his pro soccer career. After a successful bone marrow transplant, Oliver and his wife founded Soccer for Hope, a nonprofit organization that has raised over $3.5 million for childhood cancer research and essential family support. Welcome, Oliver. Thanks for having me. All right. And finally driving this entire conversation. And as I mentioned earlier, a key part of getting this breaking the line, the ECNL podcast rolling is Jason Cutney. He is simply the man, the ECNL boys commissioner, a position he took in early 2019 with a focus on expanding the league to meet the needs of the nation's top youth athletes. Previously, Cutney was the sporting director and CEO of the Pittsburgh Riverhounds and was named the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year in 2013 for his involvement in the Highmark Stadium project, which is spectacular, this after a 9-year professional playing career in the A-League and USL. With all of that, I turn it over to the man, Jason Cutney, take it away.
2: Well, thanks Dean. And, and obviously as, as you said there with, uh, with Mario Scott and Oliver, we got a really good panel here for discussion today and we're talking about the pro pathway and really what a big focus for us in this conversation is to talk about things that allow us to dig a little bit deeper into what makes that pathway possible for these players and what each club individually is doing. And even if we can throw a net over some things that everyone collectively is doing and really use it as a way to pass on knowledge, to other clubs in the league, whether they have a true pathway with a pro team above them, or if their standards are at that level where they are certainly producing the professional pathway for their players. So, you know, welcome to everybody here. Louisville City, obviously for Pittsburgh, for Scott and myself is a big thorn in our side. So Mario, we're gonna put you on the hot seat first here with the first question. So thinking about Louisville City and and obviously look, an amazing commitment the club has made to the development of facilities and staffing. Of the pro side and now more recently with the youth side. What do you think about environment, Mario? Think about how does the environment in which these youth players develop on a daily or weekly basis, how does that set the tone for everything that's lying ahead in a player's journey? Yeah,
3: I think that's the, the part I'm enjoying the most right now working with Lou City is that everyone from the ownership group to the president to right Coach Hackworth for the first team, we all value the environment. As we've you know built this new training facility, one of the key things we wanted to make sure was that the kids literally are going to be playing and training right next to the professional players. So when you look at our, you know, our facility set up, we have the, the turf fields for the youth positioned right next to the, the grass fields for the pro team. So the kids on a daily basis get to see what it takes to be a pro because I think one thing we forget is this day and age, they want to think it's instant success. And we want to see the kids, you know, that they can look across the field and see the pros grinding away. and and working on their craft. So we've paid real uh, close attention to that environment. We're gonna have a workout room that'll be next to, again, the the first team as well. So that's something that we're taking real serious because we know, look, there's a lot of good coaches, there's a lot of good clubs, but I do think one thing that sets apart the, the clubs that are pushing kids from an academy level to a professional level is that environment where they can touch it and feel it. So now we'll be able to literally, in a session, If Coach Hack needs an extra player, literally they can go across the field and jump in with the first team. So we're meeting on a a daily basis. I sit on every meeting with the first team and they're talking about what they need so I can relay that message to our academy coaches and we can pull up kids who can train hand in hand with the first team players. Ultimately, I think that's what's going to drive here in the U.S. and drive it forward is academy programs that are able to touch the first team pros and then these kids can can mix in with it. I used where you know get kicked around a little bit by the first team, but they understand the commitment it takes uh, to be successful and, and to make that big jump. But I do think it takes alignment from the ownership group to the first team coaches to sporting directors to the academy to
2: to have the same vision to make it work. There's been a lot of great people involved in in making Louisville City become a reality. I remember even back to the early days and talking to Phil Rawlings, some of the early USL meetings when. USL was much smaller at that time, and Orlando City was kind of a guiding light for many of the club directors, and Phil was, was talking to me about this concept and this plan that would become Louisville City. And to see what you guys have created there, and you know, obviously Brad is, is the president and having hacked there, I think you know it's certainly become a model very quickly in this country, which is a, a testament to everything that you guys are putting into it there. Scott and I obviously go back quite some time here. Scott and I had the opportunity to work together for many years with the Riverhounds and really building it from from scratch on the youth side, especially it happened after a year where we kind of took on the club as a project. At that time, I would say, Scott, you'll remember this with me, but 2006, 2007, we opted not to have a pro season that year, just so we could focus on the youth. And one of the biggest things that we discussed at that time was focusing on the youngest ages in Pittsburgh and developing some habits there. But, you know, when you think about the Riverhounds Academy since inception, it's always worked with the youngest players in Pittsburgh, ages three and up. And having seen now, Scott, thousands of players under your tutelage over the last 10-plus years, how time flies, I guess, with some advancing now to the highest levels of the game, the pro game, some sign with the River Hounds, you know, what do you feel are the earliest signs that a top prospect is in your program? And and how do those signs emerge at those young ages?
4: Yeah, I mean, obviously, Jason, you were a massive part of it and and still are, right? So in the past 10 years from from those days where we were just training only to now having that full-team model in place, having your Robbie Mercies and, and others now that are playing, applying their trade in the USL last year, obviously when, when you took the position with, with ECNL, you know, we try to reinvent the wheel back again into our grassroots program. So, which I know your, your, your daughter's in it and, and, and a part of that, where we work with players ages three through seven, who we look to really push them technically. Right. So what I believe is these players, the, the emerging talents are the ones that, that do more than just grassroots programming the ones that are at home, working at home with, with either their parents or, or through online programming at home. You know, they're sponges to learning. They love the ball. They're hardworking, quick learners. And we talk, Jason, and we've taught over the years that these kids are the kids are such visual learners that we put our top, top trainers and coaches and even some current players that play for our first team into that environment, into that culture. You have Robbie Vincent and you have Stephen Okais and Kevin Kurz, who are who are guys who just recently retired from our first team are in there with the likes of Jason who played for you know pro for many years and, and myself and others where we are challenging those players and encouraging those players to take risks but to have fun in a real energetic environment for us, that builds a foundation where when they get to seven, eight, nine, they can then maybe potentially translate into our team platform, which is the RDA, uh, the River Development Academy, and then we go from there. So the ones that are that the prospects are easy to see pretty early on, but then it's our job to nurture that process all the way through. It's a long process, as we know, the developmental process of a player is many ups and downs, and. How do they deal with that? But before I, I let you guys move on, the, the, the culture side of it is, you know, what Mario said is big. I mean, with Highmark Stadium, obviously, with our first team here, our project in, in Coriopolis, where we're, you know, about to, to get a full indoor facility with, with fields there, it's having these young players in and around the pro team, recently retired players, it just breeds a culture and it's it's the culture of the day in and day out. You go into a lot of locker rooms or environments where the slogan's on the wall, but I feel as though you've got to do it through your actions and we preach that day in and day out. So the grassroots foundation is certainly a, a big part of it that, that will hopefully build that foundation for years to come.
2: Well, it's definitely, uh, it's it's paid off to this point, And obviously it's, it, I've seen it, been able to see it firsthand with just the culture that's created and how that translates as well to families supporting the first team because they see those guys coaching their children on a, on a weekly basis. And, you know, I know that's, that's very near and dear to to Oliver as well with Orange County. And he's done a, a great job at also building West coast FC on the boys side out there and Southern California. It's a huge market, right? And you have Oliver who's come in with a great playing career in Swiss youth national team and Swiss first division. But Oliver, you stepped into a role there with Orange County. You started working on building partnerships. You got a a significant partnership with classical Rangers FC. What do you see when you look at the youth development spectrum? What are those benefits? But also what are the risks associated with young players, either at the youth side, playing up at older ages, or at this point now integrating in with the first
5: team? What we clearly wanted to build here in Mario and obviously uh, Scott had talked about it before is we wanted to build a pathway where truly the most talented players in Southern California had the opportunity to be developed as a professional player and I've seen a tremendous amount of talented players over all these years, some talents that we feel could play in the absolutely highest level, but they've always played in their club levels. They've trained two, three times a week. They played their own age brackets. And I thought it would be very, very difficult for them to ultimately reach the fullest potential. So at Orange County Soccer Club, what we wanted to build an environment, a professional environment, where truly the most talented players could be competing on a daily basis in a professional environment where they obviously get the opportunity to play if they're ready, but more important learn what it means to be professional players day in and day out 24-7 because it's ultimately a lifestyle. So for example, last year, we had eight players under the age of 19. The youngest one was 15. And we have players that have been with us for a few years, like Aaron Cervantes, who started with us a 15-year-old and they just recently sold to uh, Glasgow Rangers. And it's obviously a process. And so I think as Mario alluded to in Louisville, the key is that everybody in our organization is aligned to the process for us the balance between trying to compete for a championship but also doing player transfers is a fine balance that you got to be careful that you don't go too far into one directions too quickly but as we have been able to show, i think we found a good balance between competing uh, making the playoffs trying to go for a usl cup because at the end of the day every professional team if that's not your ultimate goal you're probably missing why you're a professional team in first place but then within that said we feel that the USL is a perfect platform to really develop these players and to ultimately, we're looking at these young players as asset players, because let's face it, player transfer is annually about a $5 billion industry. The US has, takes very small part of it, even though they have a tremendous amount of talent. The fact that U.S. soccer is not really enforcing player compensation, training compensation, solidarity payments doesn't mean we couldn't look at player transfers and do that directly. So I think after now three or four years since we had established, we've been fairly successful in moving some of these players, have actually interest in some of the other players and attracting now the top talented players. But it's clearly not all these players can play for you on the first team if you want to still compete. So I think having a youth network where you clearly define who are your partners. Like in our case, we have West Coast Football Club that is a partner of ours who obviously has a very, very strong ECNL program. So we're working closely with the coaching staff, coaching education, looking at player developments. You know, in the USL, there's going to be USL Academy that starts next year as well too which I think is a very well needed addition to the entire pathway structure especially we're actually not looking at as a youth league we're looking at as a reserve league where our players can actually play in there and if they don't get the minutes on the first team they get the minutes in the same structure on the second team so again I think what is essential is what I grew up in Switzerland uh, the best players even at a young age when they're ready you know they're playing when training with pros and I think you look Look at us, for example, we signed Kobe Henry last year who should be starting in the U-17 World Cup next year. He trains and plays alongside now Michael Orozco, who's played for the U.S. almost 30 times, and learns from him in a single every single day, not only from the coaches, but also from a great pro. And I think if we look at some of our top senior players that are also role models for younger players, I think we have an ideal combination of really developing these players. It's interesting. I mean, the
2: ECNL, on the boys' side, look, it's only it's only three and a half years old, right? And so the oldest players that came up through ECNL CNL in those original years are still in college, right? As many of them have not made that jump to post-college. But what we're starting to see now more and more, the trend in this country is that these young players at 16, 17 are being spotlighted and given opportunities within a pro structure, whether that's through an MLS academy, a USL academy, or other. You know, there, there's opportunities that are out there. And so you look at a, a Jose Gallegos, for instance, from Classics Elite. ECNL, I, one of my first events with ECNL, I got a chance to watch him. and I heard special player a few months later, he's with San Antonio UFC. And now he's up for young player of the year in the USL championship. I think that trend will continue. And we see a lot of clubs in the ECNL right now who are really starting to push players on and give them opportunities. But one of the key questions here as you go forward is, you know, when you look at that college soccer pathway versus the professional pathway, it's a tough decision, right? And those those decisions have to be made at an early age, where you understand the implications of bypassing potentially a, a college scholarship opportunity to go and sign pro. Uh, Oliver, we'll stay with you here on this one, and then we'll go we'll go backwards. But what do you think when you look at these young players, and you have to have that discussion with them and their families relative to college soccer and the pro pathway? Are there certain factors that you feel are the the most important for the, for the families and the players to really think about when making that decision? Because it's obviously a big life decision.
5: I think first and foremost, you have to be honest and you have to really lay out the pros and the cons. So for us, for example, when you say you're committed to player development, so we sign a young player to a professional contract, we're actually offsetting his college education as well. Because at the end of the day, let's be very honest, for a player who plays youth soccer here and ends up going on a scholarship to college, that's a success, right? And I think there's many players who end up doing this. We're talking really about the 1%, the most talented players that have the ability to play on the next level and you not you don't always get it right not every player at age 14 15 or 16 ends up being the best player at age 18 19 20 but i think you have to invest in players and you have to make sure you look in these players and give them a perspective and for us first and foremost is the mentality look we all know they have the talent otherwise we wouldn't have the conversation but we need to make sure that truly between the parents the player in the club, everybody is aligned. And then sometimes you throw the agent in there as well to make sure that they know what the plan is for the player. I think what's a little bit special for us now with the partnership with Glasgow Rangers, we're not going to be the end piece of that player, right? The aspiration has got to be the next big step. And that's obviously for us now, Glasgow Rangers. And I think so if a young player comes in with us, He knows he's going to be developed on the same level as he would be in Europe at age 15 to 18. And if he has a European passport, he might be able to get over there a little bit sooner, right? But if not the typical American player, he will be with us till he's 18 years old and then we move him on. So we're not the end piece, but I think we're a very important piece in developing these players because in the past, so many times players have gone and left the country too early and they just come back. And it was not for a lack of talent. I think it was for a lack that they were not prepared. So I think, again... It's honesty. It's making the commitment to the player, sticking with the player, to think not every player is going to pay off. But at the end of, I think it's essential if a player truly has the ability to play on the highest level, and everybody's in agreement of that, you got to make the commitment to it. And these players need to go in a professional setting because I think if we wait till they are 19 or 20 or come back from college, I think we miss the golden opportunity to really prepare them. To-
2: so Mario, when you think about that, and and obviously Louisville Academy is new, so you you're stepping into this with Louisville City and for the first time. But you've been in the college game, you've coached at the college level at a good level there and you've seen players move on and, and po- have post collegiate careers. Now you're seeing some burgeoning talent coming up through Louisville city with the club there. You know, when you think about that decision as to when to move a player onto a, a different level or a higher level, you know, you have a U 16 and a 17 in the Academy. It looks like he's starting to show potential to go on to that pro contract. What kind of takes place in that space of time between, I think this player might be ready and this player signing a contract. When you look at that.
3: I think that's where the alignment piece comes. We have a young man who's an '03 3 who's going to sign his first contract with the club here shortly. And the process started a year ago, even before we had these teams where, to Oliver's point, he started training with the first team, you know, and and we, I don't say eased him into it. We treated him like normal, you know. And then this past year, um, he was able to actually get into a game. And then, you know, as a staff, we're constantly evaluating them. Um, and right now, interesting thing was he's been training with the youth again with the U19s because the first team's done. And seeing him now with the youth, it clearly to us now is like, OK, he's ready because he was you know, hands above everyone right now those last few weeks of training with the U19s. So I think it's a it's a it's a person by person evaluation. It's constant discussions, literally daily, again, with that alignment piece between the first team and, and myself I'm out there, so I get to evaluate it as well and work with them. So I think that also helps. That we're all again seeing the same thing. Ultimately, I don't think there's anything that's going to 100% say he's ready or not ready. You know, we have discussions with the family, and they understand. I say risk, but you know we educate them from day one. We advise them if they're not ready not to get an agent, so they can continue with their NCA eligibility. But it's 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 constant communication with the individual and their family, so they understand. At the same time, I think a valuable option now is taking a gap year. You know, having been in the NCAA for so long, I, I know the nuances it, and I see we're seeing a lot of boys taking a gap year because they are interested in professional you know, sports. Maybe they're not quite ready physically or something, and so they can take that gap year, still keep their eligibility, and, and then another year with the pros, and then we can evaluate at that point as well. I think – my background, obviously, like a lot of American coaches coming through it myself as a college player and then moving on professionally, when we all came through, it, there was no other option. And I think the only difference now is that there's legitimate options, whether it's the USL level, the MLS level, you know, that these kids can pursue. We just didn't have that. And I would even say, you know, 10 years ago, even legitimately, yeah, there was MLS for signing a few kids. But I would argue now, if you look what Oliver's done and some of the other USL teams, probably the USL is the best platform for a young American player because they're going to play. So what we're doing, it goes back to the alignment, uh, Jason, that we have, like, I'm also coaching the U-19s for the ECNL, the top team. We have six kids that are either 05 or 06 playing with the U-19s. Like everyone, we want to win. We're trying to do everything we can. But at the same time, as a club, we're aligned that, you know, if we kept those six kids playing at their age group, we would have you know, a lot of success. Might we sacrifice a win or two having these young kids play up for sure, but that's, what's best for their development. You know, they're physically ready. They're technically ready. So we, to do what's fair to them and to the, you know, I say the game to give them the best opportunity, we're putting them all, you know, playing with the O2s and O3s.
0: So I think it always comes back to, you know, what we're all talking about is the, the culture and the alignment
3: that, you know, everyone, even in the club, I'll be, Frank, you know, majority of our kids are pay to play. We do have some kids on scholarship, but even, you know, we're still aligned in what we're trying to do. And we're just constantly communicating with the player, with the parents and then internally. And it's constant evaluation. Again, it's still relatively new in the grand scheme of things in this country, but if you have the alignment, the right people pulling together, it, it can be done and still protect the kids. So they do have if necessary, the ability to go back to college
2: one of the most fascinating things i've been able to be a part of so far with ECNL, and it was the weekend before the entire country shut down it was in march of this uh, of last year where we had the super cup the first super cup event for ECNL, and it was in the northeast and i know scott's pretty bummed about this cuz pittsburgh was set to be in the the midwest for the super cup as well but it was an opportunity for us to see and in that case it was pda match fit fsa and penfusion but Their best players from that age of U15 up to U18 were on one team, and it was a really interesting thing to see because we had never, on the UCL side of things, had never done that before, where we created that you know quote unquote varsity team for each club. But the turnout from college coaches and pro scouts was fantastic at that event, and it was just one small weekend event in Delaware, but the turnout was there. But the the bigger thing that we saw was just the response from the players, especially the young boys. On the first day, you could pick out who the young ones were. Obviously, physically, you could pick them out in some cases, but just emotionally and how they were responding to the pressure and the pace of the game was clear. On day two, it was really interesting to see those same players, whether they were still struggling their way into it or if they'd found their, their way. And most of those players had already found their way. Just from being given that opportunity on day one to play amongst those older boys it'd be, in that environment was amazing. And I sat down with one of the Georgetown coaches at that time. And you know even he said, look, to, to see the progression from yesterday to today shows that some of these boys can go on and play at a very high level. And, and so we look at the Super Cup as an opportunity going forward within the ECNL to really stretch the development of these young players to give them that battle test and see what they're made of. And Scott, when you think about that, I mean, obviously you've you've done a lot in Pittsburgh uh, with the Pathway Program. You've brought some young boys teams over actually to Rangers this past year. You know, what what do you look at as being the best ways to stretch the development of a top youth player? And, you know, look, it, it can involve having a pro team at the top of that pyramid or not. I mean, what are what are those major things that you see in just stretching the development of a young player?
4: You've got to push that player, right? And, and obviously, we did take a team off to Glasgow Rangers, so Oliver beat us to the punch there a little bit. But that experience for them, I'll just touch on that, for our all seven boys, went over last December. It was just incredible. Back to the culture aspect of it. We got three games in uh, against Dundee United, St. Johnson, and, and, and Rangers 2. Their academy coaches were, were, were running sessions for the boys, but it was just the, the feel of being at Murray Park and, and being in that environment. And, and, you know, they were fortunate enough to get to play on the, on the pitch there at Ibrox in front of 55,000 people. And that's thanks to Gary Crooks and the, and the staff over there. But just from them seeing that, we've already seen some of those boys who took part on that trip come back to the U.S. And, and, and just are so much better for it. But Jason, you know, I mean, we, we push players across all of our age groups, whether they're 8, 9, 10, we'll, we'll push them up if we feel that's best for their individual development. You know, that's sometimes has gone against the grain uh, and the norm of the, 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 team, the team of that age group doing well or, or winning games and, you know, that, that part of it. We don't really care about that. And, and Jason, you were a big advocate in this too when you were here. We need to push that player. And, and Jason, I'll give him a bit of credit here, came up with a, with a struggle, survive, thrive sort of slogan for our players that, you know, if you have a player who is a 14-year-old boy who is who's head and shoulders above the rest and, and, you know, yes, that's good for that individual team but is just thriving in that environment how can you make that, that player uncomfortable and, and push them into an environment where they may struggle for a little bit of time, gain that experience and begin to settle in there and, 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 you know, get more out of it. So the pathway program that we do here, it was put on hold a little bit there due to, due to COVID this season, where we cycle in boys with our pro team. So it'll be a weekly cycles where Coach Bob Lilly and, and, and the staff will, will come to us and ask, okay, you know, which top 16, 17s are performing? Who would you like to get in? They'll come in and train for the week. With the first team, if we have a home game that week, they'll be on the bench, just there. They're about, you know, obviously not not playing or anything like that. But just smelling that culture and, and understanding what it takes, because we talk heavily with our, let's just say, thirteens through eighteens, on managing distractions away from the game, taking care of schoolwork. Though you know, things go go on in in, in everyone's home life that are, are away from the field that go into the complete maturation of a player. They can learn from seeing the sacrifices that that. that that all players and pro players have had to make because any player that's made it pro or at a high level has had to make choices and sacrifices along the way. So, that pathway program has been really good for us. The other thing we do internally, we call our PPS, our premier player program, is cross age groups from time to time. Once every three weeks on a cycle, we'll have whether it's our 2007, six, and five boys the coaches at those age groups will recommend their their top five or six players at that point in time, where we'll put them into a, an additional training session every other week or so, which, which then we can see, you know, our top performing boys training together. We can keep tabs on it. You know, the younger boys get the experience of that. The older boys learn and girls, we do this on the girls side too, but learn that leadership quality of, of what it takes and it becomes a, a, a real connection and synergy throughout the age groups where you know that 13 year old may look up to that 18 year old and be like okay that's what that's who I want to be so with the Super Cup yet we were obviously frustrated with the timing of things that happened with the USL Academy stuff coming down the line which is a a similar thing next year the more that we can push our players to be made to see things open their eyes speed of play that kind of thing We'll do it at, at, at the at the sacrifice of potentially winning games at their own age group because that's you know for individual player development we need to push them.
2: I'm glad you brought up uh, the the female side. There too often I think in this country when we talk about the professional pathway, it's, there's an assumption that we're talking about the the boys side, the men's side, and you know I'll, I'll go back to, to Mario here with racing Louisville. obviously the the women's pro side is there as a tip of the spear as well for your club. Are all of these things that we're talking about here, is it straight across the board? Is there a direct correlation with what you're doing on the girls' side? And are they experiencing that same culture that you're building on the boys' side?
3: 100%. Honestly, I like to think we're on almost the forefront. I know the the Thorns have done a good job as well. But we've already had our first session, similar to what Scott's talking about for an elite training program for the girls. We brought in – 26 of the top girls from 06 to 02. They had a session in the stadium. Coach Christie ran it from the first team. It's 100% at the forefront of us. We're, quite honestly, whatever we do for the, for the boys slash men, we're going to do for the girls and the women. We like to think that we're, we're on the forefront for, for women's soccer here and the youth development side and that pathway. It's pretty neat. You know, I've already talked to parents and, and young ladies um, in the club who are talking about going professional out of high school or within high school. I think it's a a, a stone that has need to be turned over and, and and grow and develop. It's going to be interesting to see how um, families <laughs> on the female side, because you know it's always like the men. Early on, it was all college, college, college. We are slowly introducing the idea to these uh, young young ladies about the opportunity to pursue a professional career. And to Oliver's point, we're also looking at it that you know the ironically the European market right now is so strong for women's soccer. So we do see it as a, from a business side as well is that we can get into the player acquisition and selling the transfer market with the women's program. So I think, Jason, I think it's really fair of you to bring up and we're definitely doing everything we can to help these young ladies have the exact same opportunities.
2: Scott can talk about this as well, but I, there's, there's a player in Pittsburgh right now, Tessa Delarose. Rose. She committed to University of North Carolina as a before all the rules changed here in in college soccer as a freshman, but she's on the U.S. national team. She's gone over to stint overseas as well. But, you know, there's players in each market. You know, Pittsburgh is not a huge market. There's players in every market on the female side that are bubbling up in this country. And I think for them to see some of these players go overseas and do really well and and see the marketability and and the commercial branding of those leagues starting to really come on, whether it's a game that's on the Peacock network or whatever, like we're starting to see that there's a, a huge allure and drive to that professional game which i think will only really help all things with the ecnl and and all leagues in this country really we'll have time for one more question here and i i want you to kind of think as deep as you can on this one and i'll put you on the spot here but i'm looking to see what do you feel is your best kept secret in player development and advancement you know what what is that one thing and, and let's you know, try not to be cliché. Try not to use the buzzwords. Try to think really organically of what any club, any person, you know, any parent who sees the talent club director, scout, etc. You know, what's one thing that you feel is is the secret to success when it comes to player development? I somehow rolled a imaginary dice here to see who's going to go first on this one, and I'm Oliver. I'm going to start with you. And then we'll work, and, and I'll surprise Scott and Mario with who's next.
5: Well, I think it goes in what we just discussed here. The, the words everybody uses is culture and development, right? And everybody uses the words, but not every organization is actually committed to it and really puts the resources and the professionalism behind it. I think what we have done is actually no big difference than what the big clubs in Europe, but everywhere else have done. You truly create that culture, you truly build it within, and you have everybody believing it, and then you got to go out there and lead by example. Look, if you sign young players in the USL, and you don't ever play them, they're not going to get better. So taking on the risk and making sure that, for example, our head coach, who's very familiar with the youth setup as well too, gets the opportunity to play these young players and doesn't have to be worried if he loses a game or two because they make a mistake. He won't have a job anymore. It's in something we're together. So I think the really the hidden secret is not really that there's anything we're doing any differently than what successful clubs are doing, but that you actually are doing it over and over again and you're not getting derailed by one or two bad results or by some changes and you stick with it.
2: Good. That's well said. I mean, uh, let's, let's go with, uh, let's go with Scott next. Scott, what do you think is the, uh, the best kept secret there in, in Pittsburgh for developing? It's players? just
4: You know, it's, it's just, we just keep doing what we're doing. And I, I know that's to say what Oliver said, it's, it's not trying to reinvent the wheel, but staying true to what you have as your values within your staff and with within your own environment. Again, you can get carried away with, with, with trying to think out the box too much, but for us, it's, it's being accountable and keeping the players accountable too right when whenever they walk into our facility whenever they come to train you know we always look at you know the one test that we do and you know this Jay is I immediately look at the body language of our players when they walk in whether they're eight years old 18 years old or one of our pro players or whatever right you know we want the players to express the right body language that they're here to work and we will replicate that obviously with with our with our teaching but also knowing it's 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 bigger than the game too right you have to form relationships with your players and and know i kind of touched on it earlier is yeah they may come to our facility for you know three or four sessions a week but you know we've got to understand what you know pull the pull the the the, the shell back a little bit and understand what's going on in in, in their private lives too because, you know, things could be going on at school that we're not aware of and they're coming in and we're trying to, you know, beat them all over the head with different things and, and, and different sessions that their mind might not be there. Right. So we've got to get to know the person to create that relationship with each player and family. And, and obviously the parents are vital to that, too. One programming aspect that we have, I think, is a, is a, a little bit different here is is our speed and strength training that, that, that we do with the, the both the boys and the girls side mike whiteman i don't know if you guys are familiar with mike i know you are jason but he is a tremendous uh, speed and strength trainer and if you, i'm going to plug him a little bit here with at hound speed on, on twitter the the stuff that that, that he does without players which is away from the, the 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 daily training on the on the on the soccer field is is, is phenomenal so you know check him out that's something that provides not only our pro players but our academy players and then creates that culture of how they look after themselves off the field building good life habits for when you know they move on from us and so on and so on but we have a lot of good people here and and our staff before we move on you know John Ratz and Justin Evans and these guys who who have been part of it in such a short space of time but no secret. Just we just keep doing what we do every day.
2: Mario, bring us
3: home. What do you what do you say? It's interesting you brought this up because last night this topic came up. One of our um, I guess you could say part time coaches he asked me. He goes, why, is, why are there so many center mids in America? And the reason I, you know it kind of it, it, it brings me to this question. One of the things now that we have our facility and we have plenty of field space, you know we're going to start doing a lot more functional training. You know, it's no fault that sometimes American coaches, you know, you 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 coach in youth soccer in this landscape, and you get a quarter of a field. It's hard to work on your outside backs. You know, one v one defending, getting forward, serving balls, your wingers, and so we. I think in America we create a very generic. It's a good player, but very generic. They can do a little of everything. So one thing that we're going to do, besides what Oliver and Scott are talking about, just culture and all that, we know. But we're going to do some specialized functional training starting when they're 13. I think, look, I don't want to do it before that because I think there's a need to be well-rounded and some kids, you don't know their growth, but we're going to once a week get two or three age groups together. And, you know, a coach will run a session with the strikers. Like the one for all of us, you know, how come America doesn't produce a great number nine? How many kids, I think the problem is how many kids in America get in front of the goal three or four days a week. You know what I mean? So, you know, that specifically, you know, one day a week, they're all going to come in and do everything around the goal and they take the backs work on defending and, and so forth. So one thing that we're, that's one thing we're going to do to help, I think, not only produce professional players, but help these kids develop in their own right is a lot more specialized training by position. So functional training that kind of gives those little nuances to the kids and, and really make them, you know, experts at the position they play.
4: We actually just did that here in Pittsburgh with Kevin Kerr, who was a captain. He was a captain of the Pittsburgh Rurons. Yeah. He just retired recently. We launched that and hired Kevin. He's, he's one of the coaches, but he called the Fundamentals Program, and it's exactly what you're talking about. And we rolled that out um, this past summer, and it's exactly what you said, whether it's, you know, you're, you've got you, your you're across-age groups in working on, you know, half volleys or cutbacks or just things that you don't get to do in, in training. Yeah. And, and the feedback you can give you is the, the, the players loved it absolutely yeah. loved it so we're that's that's uh, just a bit of feedback on that's great yeah i
3: think that's where you know a little bit of you know that you talk about that pathway and, and what some clubs can do and it's it's all based on resources we're lucky now because we have a facility but you know it's it's hard when you <laughs> for a lot of us and you know i know you know all are down orange county and there's so many clubs in a small area and you, you go out there and literally there's eight teams on, a, on one field and uh, coaches do the basic the, the best they can do and it's i think it's been pretty amazing players that are produced, but it, and you're not specializing in anything. These kids become, as they get older, a little bit generic. And you even ask them sometimes, they don't even know what position they're best at because they, they're just a little bit of everything.
2: It's interesting listening to you guys talk, and I'm, I'm kind of reminiscing in my head here about the early days of building the club with Scott and, and other people, like, like you'd mentioned with John Rotts and Justin Evans and Gene Klein and all these great guys. And before we started Riverhounds Academy, I had an opportunity to run a little camp program, whatever you want to call it. It was like a clinic really, but it was called Academy 19. And it was just something that I threw together in my off seasons from when I was a Charleston Battery player. It was a cool little thing. It was it was a bunch of little kids that came in for the program and training and I did my absolute best to make sure it was a great training session. Everything was planned and you know, everything was laid out before the boys arrived and the girls arrived. And but we had locker rooms in this facility in which we were running it. And my and one of the little things I did to try to make the players feel professional was that I would collect all their uniforms after every session, wash them, get their boots, polish them. And the next day when they arrived for their training session, they would have those things in a locker ready for them. And at the end of the whole program, it was a, it was a week long program, but at the end of it, I asked for some feedback on a survey as to what they thought about the program and you know, the training sessions and everything else. And the training sessions got their you know, fair review for sure. But what stood out for every single player was having the uniform, folded, clean, shoes polished in the locker ready for them the next day. And that, that left a lasting impression in me as I went forward with, with youth soccer and in, in that space that these players want to feel like pros. And they, they truly, no matter the age, I mean, those were 9, 10, and 11-year-olds at that time. And they wanted to feel like pros. And I think what you all have done, you know, I've been able to watch Scott specifically do it. Pittsburgh, but having seen what Louisville and Orange County are doing, it's clear that the, the environment is conducive for these players to go on and dream bigger. And I think that's probably the biggest asset that we can provide to young players is that opportunity to dream. And then as they show the ability to really get there, use our contacts, use our connections, use our power to to push them on and give them that opportunity. But, you know, for me, it was awesome to hear all these things. Dean, I, I will turn it over to you. I, I rest my case. These are, these are the three best guys I could bring to the table for this discussion. And uh, I think it's a, it's a great lesson for everybody.
1: Absolutely fantastic conversation and a great way to kick off episode five of breaking the line, the ECNL podcast. I'm going to end with just uh, looking for one sentence from each of our three guests, Jason, you answered it on the opening one on what ECNL means to you. We'll start with you, Scott. ECNL to you means what?
4: It has been a lead platform for us that completely changed the opportunities for our boys and girls in the Academy. It's, it's, we love ECNL, we love everything about it. Long may that continue.
1: Mario, ECNL means
4: what?
3: Proven platform with professional standards and a a long-term vision to youth
1: development. And Oliver, ECNL means what?
5: We're looking at it as a big pool of talented players. Like, for example, this weekend, we're sending the head coach, the talent manager, and the head scout to Las Vegas to watch and scout the four ECNL games that the local Southern California teams play.
1: Finally, Oliver, people want to learn more about Soccer for Hope, which is just amazing, particularly knowing what you've gone through, where can they find out more information about that?
5: I appreciate it. The website will be the best at SoccerForHope.org. SoccerForHope.org.
1: What a great first segment. I want to thank all of you, Jason, Scott, Mario, and Oliver. Thanks for being on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Thank you, guys. Thanks. 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 Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Jason Cutney, the ECNL Boys Commissioner, putting together a power-packed discussion right there. I loved every second of it. Coming up next, Madison Hammond, who played ECNL for McLean Youth Soccer, played almost every minute during her time at Wake Forest under Tony Deleuze, and is now with OL Rain and NWSL. She's the only Native American in the NWSL. Her mom is incredible, her mom's brother is incredible, but more importantly, Madison Hammond is incredible. She joins me and ECNL President and CEO, Christian Lavers, after these messages.
0: ECNL Boys is partnering with Puma for the second year, driving sport forward with the leading products and the next generation of pros who wear them. Puma has proven themselves as the fastest sports brand in the world, the fastest innovation, the fastest players, and the fastest products in the game. They're the perfect partner to complement the speed and talent of our teams. In keeping with their mantra of forever faster, Puma introduces the world's fastest boot, the Ultra. The only boot engineered for speed, the Ultra combines a woven upper with a lightweight outsole for direct forward motion, speed and acceleration. It's the best in the game, designed for the best players in the game. From athletes just starting to turn heads to some of the best athletes to ever play their games, Gatorade shows that they are the proven fuel of the best. For the athletes who give everything, nothing beats Gatorade the studied, tested, and proven fuel of the ECNL. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Once again, here's Dean Linke.
1: Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. wanna thank Jason Cutney and his unbelievable star-studded crew for kicking things off. Now, as promised, we are talking about Madison Hammond. And there's so many ways we can go when thinking about telling the story of Madison Hammond now with the OL reign of the NWSL. In fact, there are so many positive adjectives and accolades that if we tried to list all of them, we certainly would end up short. Yes, she is the first Native American to ever play in the NWSL. Yes, she is a woman of color, not afraid to use her voice, always aware of the society around her and the need for change. Yes, she starred for McLean Youth Soccer after moving from Albuquerque with her mom, a power player, a captain in the Naval Academy, and now an important part of our nation's fight against coronavirus. Yes, her mom is the brother of Noda Begay, not only a wonderful golfer and good friend to Tiger Woods, but a true pioneer in fighting for the rights of Native Americans in our country as well. We can say all of that, and certainly I just did, but instead, I want to start by talking about what Tony Deleuze, the 24-year top man of the Wake Forest Demon Deacons, who Madison played for every game she was available. Point is, Tony said if she could walk, she could play, she was that good. But he also said this about Madison Hammond, and I quote, she is a motto of class, resilience, persistence, and hard work. She, along with Katie Stengel, are the two hardest workers ever played for me at Wake Forest. And she is the kind of person you will only ever wish good things for. She will earn it and deserve it. So with that, we welcome in Madison Hammond. And Madison, to end with those kind of words from Tony DeLuz, big praise. How does that make you feel about his words? And how does that make you feel about spending time with Tony Deleuze?
6: One, it makes me, my first reaction was just to smile. Um, you know, Tony and I really built a good relationship over my time at Wake Forest. And so it's just nice to know that he realized and recognizes how much work that I put into the program and how much I cared about the program and I just wanted us to be successful. And so I was willing to do whatever it took.
1: So you got the hardest working player of all time. You've got being the first native American in the NWSL. You've got being a person of color. You've got a mom that is a superpower, a captain with the Naval Academy, who's on the front lines trying to find help for a cure for COVID. And you've got her brother who is famously an outspoken person on you know native americans he's a friend with tiger woods pretty good golfer golf analyst madison you got a lot of cool things going on
6: yes definitely i have a lot of cool people in my life in my corner so i'm definitely lucky for that
1: well let's talk about your mom though i mean indeed a power player barely tells the story i mean you're talking about a naval captain who's on the front lines trying to get us out of this terrible mess how proud of her are you
6: It's interesting because my mom and I have a very, very close relationship and she's very supportive of anything that I want to do. And so sometimes I think it's funny that I take a step back and I'm like, mom, you're such a badass. And I just tell her that. And she she's like, no, you know, it's just what I have to do with my job. And I'm like, no, like you objectively, you are the coolest person. And yeah, I think that just everything that's happened this past year, I've just really seen her level up so many times. And every time I think that, man, that's just like, it's too much, there's just too much stress. She just really takes it like a champ. And it's definitely really inspirational, but also keeps me pretty grounded that even though I'm doing all of these awesome things with sports, there are so many other things that are going on that are just as important and what she's doing every single day is really important, not just for herself, but for literally everybody in the country.
1: Well, that's so well said, and we do want to get back to your mom. I'm going to take one more and then turn it over to Christian Lavers. But at its core, you've heard this question a million times, but we need to ask it (laughs) as well. What does it mean to be the first and only Native American in the NWSL?
6: I think for me, the best answer, the closest that I can get to the true feeling is just a really big sense of gratitude, a really big sense of inspiration, not only how I can inspire others, but also what others support is doing for me. And, you know, anytime an article has come, da- come out in the past three or four weeks, just the response has been so positive and I haven't really interacted with anybody who wants to take this to a negative space. And so if everybody's supporting me, all I can do is really propel me forward to just keep working hard and represent the communities that I come from the best to the best of my abilities, but also just to keep going. I've realized that I'm so young and I have so much that I want to do with my career, both on the field, but also off the field. And so it just really makes me excited to be the first Native American in the league.
7: So, Madison, uh, obviously, your first year in the NWSL is a pretty unique year. You're, you're playing also with Olympic Leon Rain, which is a uh, unique setup and partnership between, uh, obviously, the French club and, and the NWSL club. And playing with one of my favorite players in the NWSL, Sofia Fuerta, who was at Chicago when I was there when she was a, a rookie in uh, her first couple of years. But what was your experience like in the, in the challenge cup and in the fall series? What was this first year like with, uh, Olympically on ran?
6: So I think that this year has just been so crazy and, you know, there's been so many ups and downs for me personally, just in deciding or determining if I was even going to be on a team. And, you know, when I got the call to come into camp and go to Montana with the o l rain, I was just really hyped, really amped, wanted to show what I could do, but, being on the team actually and going to the Challenge Cup, I almost see this year's two phases. The Challenge Cup, it was nice because I got to see my team at its max strength, all the other teams at its max strength, and you know, really be able to I didn't play in any of the games, but I was able to, you know, watch and learn a lot and learn how the game works and how chaotic it can be, but also how aggressive and it's and exciting it can be. So it was nice because I could see all of that and be in a tournament environment, but not really have the pressure of having to perform, but then transition to right after the challenge cup. And my immediate response was like, okay, now I want to get on the field because I think I can play at this level. And so my entire goal this fall and during the fall series was just, you know, get better every single day, whether that's in training with a lift session, like whatever, just Every single day, getting even if it's the smallest improvement, just get better. And I feel like from my first day going to Montana in preseason with the OL rain to our last game against Utah, the amount of improvement that I've seen in just not even, you can't even call it a year. It's like a bunch of segments, the amount of improvement that I've seen for me personally and just the individual growth I've gone through. I'm so excited just because I think that it, has just prepared me for next year and for the year after that and just my career in general. So I would just call this first year, I I've called it with some of my teammates, almost an orientation rookie year because it wasn't a real rookie year, but it really did count because I learned so much and it'll help me going forward. But I think overall, I would just take it as a positive of just, I, Got a chance to grow so much with less pressure.
7: That philosophy sounds like of just constant improvement and constantly looking to learn. I got to think some of that goes back to your time growing up as a youth player at McLean and you played with one of the guys, if he's not the nicest guy in soccer, he's certainly (laughs) Clyde the Glide Watson. (laughs) who uh, everybody knows and loves. Can can you talk a little bit about your time playing in McLean and and Clyde and others there who may have, uh, may have been a part of helping you on this journey?
6: So I didn't play my entire career with McLean. I actually played for Prince William soccer for a lot of middle school and even into high school. And, you know, I won two state cups with that team and it was great and everything, but I really credit switching to McLean as the reason that I ended up at Wake Forest and which led me to being able to compete in the ACC. I would say 97% of that is because of Clyde. And I just, the first, what the way it first started was I was doing private trainings with him, you know, just like one-on-one sessions. And it was nice for somebody to, when you've been, this sounds almost a bit like a I don't even know how to say this without it sounding bad, but when when you play a lot and when people have always told you you're good, it's honestly really nice and humbling for people to point out things you're not at, not very good at and things that you can get better at. And Clyde did that, but again, in the nicest way possible. And it was just very point blank and objective. And I was just, I really instantly had a ton of respect for him and so getting the chance to play for him and just learn from him all the time it was the first time that I learned that soccer doesn't have to just be a job like we're supposed to be enjoying this game and if it's not fun then you're not doing it right and so I think I took a lot of that combined with my mentality of just working hard all the time and I think I improved so much in the two years that I was with him. And thankfully it led me to Wake Forest, but yeah, playing for Clyde just really makes you appreciate the game, not just for a sport, but as something that is much more important in all aspects to your life.
7: Well, he certainly has a, a wonderful way of being very soft-spoken and making you kind of lean in to hear something <laughs> that, uh, that- tells you what you need to do better or, or how you can be more effective. And, you know, I, I I spoke to him briefly or texted with him before this, and his comment uh, about you was a a great player, but an even better person. So, you know, I think the, the respect and admiration goes both ways. So congrats to you on that. And I guess my last question is, so when you came over to McLean at that point, point, that was, that was probably the first time you, you played in the ECNL. And a lot of the youth landscape has changed so much, even, even from when you were a youth player, but what was that experience like the first time that you went to an ECNL event um, as a young player?
6: The first ECNL event that I went to, I ended up getting recruited uh, to go to Wake Forest. So I would count it as a success. Um, well, that's pretty awesome, and... that's,
7: that's straight up.
6: Of- <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, I think that the way, it, like you said, it's crazy now, just listening to people talk about the youth setup because I don't even know what they're saying. I'm like, I don't know what league you're talking about. There's too many. Like, I, I must, I'm aged out at this point. But yeah, I remember just the ECNL being just like what everybody wanted to play in at that point, and I think it's really cool because the way it was set up was just like really competitive. You we were always playing events against the best teams. But I remember we went to the PDA showcase and. That's when I don't even remember who we were playing. I probably should. But that was the tournament where Tony had seen me play and took it and ran with it. And it actually took me a couple more months before I went on a visit to the, to that campus. But I would say my ACN, time at ACNL showcases was always a good time.
1: Wow, that is a great sell right now. And that will definitely be one that we cut out to promote this show that your first <laughs> now showcase at Tony Deleuze Find You. Because I will tell you, Tony Deleuze said that when he saw you, he's like, Wow, I love this player. And I think Madison, you will admit you were very slight, kind of this really petite little girl out there on the field and he found you. And here's the deal. Tony DeLuz admitted afterwards that Anson Dorrance actually sought you out after a game because you were so fantastic. He saw something in you before anybody else did. So that's got to mean something.
6: It definitely does. I definitely was a string bean in high school. I don't know how much I've, that's really changed, but yeah, I think that one thing I can be proud of of my time at Wake is I definitely changed so much from freshman to senior year. And again, I just think my entire life, it's just been like, get a little bit better each day. And I think I did that, and I think I'm learning how to continue doing that otherwise, so that I can have a really long career professionally.
1: For sure. The NWSL made such a big statement first at the Challenge Cup, and they continued it at the Fall Series, but at the Challenge Cup, to be the first league out there, but to also take a massive stand on social injustice. Here you are, the only Native American in the league. You're also a woman of color. Just talk about what that means as we continue the dialogue, and I can tell you, Christian will second this. We'll continue that dialogue even on this podcast as well.
6: I appreciate that. For me, to be a part of the league as it was the first league, professional sports league, to come back this year, I think I just felt an overwhelming sense of pride, particularly because my team took a ton of strides and had a ton of internal dialogue about the issues at hand and how it affects, directly impacts and affects the players and your teammates, and if they're your teammates and you're calling them your friends, then you need to be able to stand up for them on issues that are bigger than just sports. And so I thought that my team, I was very proud of, and I think that it was a really good grounding foundational step, but I think that we can take it and continue with it in years to come. I think there are more conversations that can be had. There definitely can be more representations, especially in the world of p- women's soccer. I think as long as people are continuing to, to speak and as long as the league is willing and able to give us the platforms to say what we haven't been able and comfortable enough to say in the past, as long as they're able to give us that, then I think that you'll see a ton of positive growth. Two
1: more questions and we'll let you go. I want to go back to your mom as I know she's probably hanging out with Dr. Anthony Fauci right now. as you know, <laughs> make a difference. And, I mean, you're right. I mean, when you said earlier how proud you are, I mean, she is for lack of a better word, a baller, right? I mean, she is big time with the Navy and big time with our country.
6: She is a baller. She can do it all. She really can. And she doesn't ever complain. And this year has just made me even more proud of her. And I definitely think that, I hope that we just continue progressing in the right direction in relation to COVID and everything, not just for her sake, but just for everyone's sake.
1: And just for one final soundbite, although your first soundbite was incredible, as we end the show here, breaking the line, the ECNL podcast, when you think about what ECNL has meant to you and your career that is only rising, can you put that into just one or two sentences? what the ECNL meant to you and your development?
6: I think the ECNL brought out more of my competitive side when I was younger. And I think that that competition and that drive to get better is only continuing to grow. So I guess I can thank the ECNL for giving me a time in my career when I was playing against the best teams at my age. And now I'm playing against people that are better than me every single day.
1: Madison Hammond. I'm not kidding you. Tony DeLue said you were the hardest working player to ever play for him at Wake Forest. That's something to sleep easy with right there, Madison. That is wild, but
6: I will take it, Tony.
1: (laughs) All right. Madison Hammond, this is Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Thanks so much for being with us. Enjoyed it, Madison.
6: Thank you, guys.
1: Yes, indeed. Thank you, Madison Hammond. Of course, Christian Lavers, the president and CEO of ECNL. And how about that first session? Unbelievable. Jason Cutney spearheading the entire session with Mario, Oliver, and Scott. Big time indeed. I want to thank everybody at the ECNL and everybody that plays, coaches, or works with the ECNL. We'll see you in two weeks for another edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast.
0: Thanks for listening to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.thecnl.com. And if you have a suggestion for the show or a great idea for a guest, please email us at info at Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast is an ECNL production. ECNL, more than a league.